0: Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey friends, I'm really excited about this sermon series. And unlike the last one, which was just four weeks uh, long, maybe we'll come back to that topic at some point in time. We're gonna be in this one for. A couple of months, and there's just a lot of rich material that we're going to be covering including a story I see in a whole new way today, and I hope you'll be able to see with me. But before I move there, let me ask you if you're in the house today, and I see way more people out here than I've seen in a whole year. So if you're here for the very first time in a whole year in worship, would you just clap your hands? Let me see where you are. Hey, that's, that's quite a few of you, though uh, more on this side than this side. I don't know what that's about, but anyway, that's the case. You know, I, when Chris Clifford and I, on, on the time we had to lock things down for a while, sat at this very table in this very spot and spoke to you probably for the first time virtually and we were talking back and forth. I had recognized that we would lose Easter last year, at least live Easter, and that just broke my heart. But I said, the next time we'll come together as a congregation, that'll be a little Easter because every single Sunday is a little Easter. Every Sunday is the Lord's day. Every Sunday is a resurrection day. This is just one we, we set during the year to elevate the resurrection, to raise the resurrection to a new level. Little did I know I would literally be talking about Easter. And so I'm seeing some of you that I have not seen in a year. And while the lights are powerful, I can still look out and see who is here. And, um, you know, I knew you were there. I just, I trusted you were there. But seeing is believing, so it's good to know you're alive. Just want to say it's good to see you. And as many others begin to come back, it will be good to know that they're alive too. I often hear from people and they say, well, we see you every week. But you have to imagine, I don't see you every week unless you're actually here. So it's really incredible to do that. There are lots of things like that in life that once you see them, they, you might have known they existed, but when you see them, they become something different. I'll never forget the first time I, I saw the Grand Canyon. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? I mean, if you haven't seen it, you've got to plan to see it. I was not prepared to be overwhelmed in the way that I was. I mean, I, I knew there was this big ditch In that part of the country, I had heard for a long time about the Grand Canyon. People had told me it was amazing and incredible. I've heard all the stories, but when I stood on the edge and looked over into the canyon, I just was floored. I just said, wow, that's really amazing. We had a guest one time who was here when it snowed, and this person was from a nation where there was no snow, and, and he stood at the doorway at the front of our house and wept, and I, I just couldn't fathom weeping at the sign of, of snow. I love it a lot, but I don't cry when it snows. I sometimes cry when it doesn't, but anyway, there he was, and tears were just streaming down his cheeks, and I said, you're having a pretty amazing reaction to this, and he said, look what God made. It's amazing. He said, You know, I've heard about snow. I've read about snow. I've even seen pictures of snow. I've even seen it, he said, at the top of a mountain in my country. But to stand here and watch it snow is so overwhelming. Sometimes to see something just makes it come alive in a new way, may even change the way we think about it or believe in it. That's certainly how it was for me with the cherry blossoms of Washington, D.C., which uh, bloomed, I think, the third earliest this year they've ever bloomed before. 3,500 some trees all around the tidal basin, that part of D.C., the mall. Just, it's absolutely stunning. And I had heard about them all my life. Now, my, my father grew up in D.C. Uh, my grandfather pastored in D.C. and Maryland for, for many years. I came here many times, but you know, the cherry blossoms are intriguing because to see them in full bloom, you've got to be here at a particular moment, like four or five days stretch. That's the, that's the only time they're here. So I'd never been on the mall when they were actually in bloom. Year one. Uh, Debbie and I decide we're going to take the family down and we're going to see them. And we, we made a mistake. This was a, a rookie mistake. And we went down in the middle of the day on a Saturday. There's nothing in the world worth seeing that much. It was just, and this is pre-COVID. This is like 18 years. Ago. There's nothing worth that. And The next year we discovered the secret. I always hesitate to tell this because I'm afraid too many people will figure it out. But you go down really early in the morning, like 5.30 in the morning. You get your parking space, you walk while it's still dark to the tidal basin and the sun rises on the cherry blossoms. Very few people are there. We bumped into Colombians there before, but not many people. And You just walk all the way around the tidal basin and see those cherry blossoms in full bloom. They're just amazing. And then you go to breakfast somewhere. And the first time I saw them, I really saw them, I went, wow. So this is what they're talking about. I'm not sure there's anything so Washington as the cherry blossoms. I mean, I've done lots of things. I've been to the top of the Capitol and the Rotunda and on the outside. and I've done lots of things in the time I've been here, but nothing feels more like being a part of the community to me, like walking around that tidal basin when those cherry blossoms are in bloom. It's, it feels like, at least at 530 in the morning, it feels like an inside secret. It's just really amazing. So every year we've done this. Every single year we go down until last year. Last year we were asked not to go, and we thought it wise not to anyway. The crowds were bigger than they should have been. We just saw them on television, looked at pictures like this on a screen. We missed views like this, just missed them completely. And it was, it was, it was amazing to me how sad I felt not to be able to see Now, look, I knew they were there. Intellectually, I assented to the notion that the cherry blossoms were there, but to miss out on them somehow was overwhelming to me, and we didn't go this year. The Park Service asked us not to. We know we'll be here next year. We can see them again. We didn't go this year. So I've got to trust they're there. I have to know it. Until such time as I see them again, but I will tell you, there is nothing like actually seeing them. Now, the story we're going to look at today is a story about seeing and believing. And while the story plays with the notion of being able to believe things that aren't seen, yet there is something to observing the effect of a thing like the resurrection on the world and the lives of people And this story will be a great entree. Though it comes at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, it will be a great entree into the gospel passages we're going to look at over these weeks and our exploration of a particular idea. Now, this is a new idea for me. It's amazing to me that I still have new ideas, frankly. But with regard to faith, it really amazes me when it happens because for so many years I've been studying the scriptures so carefully. But it, it never ceases to amaze me that something new can arise that will transform at least a portion of how I view things and see things. And this is like that. And it all has to do with just one Greek word. Actually kind of two, but mostly just one Greek word. And that word is the word pistuo, pistuo, which means to believe or to entrust. Now, you probably know this word in English. You see it all the time, but it's, it's a fascinating word. And if you're going to translate the New Testament from Greek to English, you'll run into this word quite a bit. You'll run into it in the teaching of Paul, and you'll most of all run into it in the Gospels, and in some ways especially in the Gospel of, of John. You're going to see this word a lot. But I, I never paid much attention to this word. It's just another word in the Bible to talk about uh, my faith—it's it, it, a word I'm I'm familiar with. Now, in our culture, we use the word belief all the time. I will say I believe in a person. I'll say I believe in an idea. I'll say I don't believe in this or don't believe in that. I'll even say I believe it's going to rain today. I mean, I'll use the word belief in the broadest possible sense. I believe this meal's going to be amazing. I'll say all sorts of things when I use the word believe, but not in the Bible. And this is what I'd never noticed before along with one other big thing I'll show you in a moment. What I started to realize reading the Gospels through in Greek this year is that the word pistuo is reserved for one thing and one thing alone. Jesus never says, I pistuo, I believe you guys are swell. Paul never uses this word even to talk about strong ideas like virtues that he wants us to keep in mind as in Philippians, I'll show you this another week, he never uses this word to speak of anything except for one. The apostles never, ever employed this word except for one thing, one thing only. In all the New Testament, you're not going to find this word misplaced. This word is reserved. It is special. It's caused me to wonder if I need to change my English vocabulary. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you at the end, I, I've decided that's the case. You can only believe in the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. This word is sacred. It is reserved for God and God alone, and it is used for nothing else. Now, maybe that's not a big deal to you, but there are a lot of words in the New Testament, and there are a number of words to talk about. Agreeing with something or, or assenting to something or acknowledging something. There are lots of words in the New Testament to do this. This word never occurs in that light. And I started to realize that is bound to mean something. Then I noticed something You ever kick yourself? Do you do that? You go, I could kick myself for never seeing this. How could you possibly read the New Testament in its original language and not notice what I'm about to show you? You're going to notice this immediately, and you may tell me, Jim, I don't know how you missed that. But I've never heard anybody talk about that, and that is the word for faith is pistis. Now, this I knew. The word for faith is pistis. So I translate the New Testament, and if I see the word pistuo, I write belief, and I see the word pistis, I write the word faith, but I never really thought about the connection between the two. And because you're speaking English, you don't think about the connection uh, between the two either. You may say a person of faith is someone who believes, but you miss the deep connection of these two words. Do you notice it? (coughs) It is not that pistis is the root of pistuo. It is not that faith is the root of belief. It is that they are two forms of precisely the same word. Exactly the same word, but one, pistis, is a noun, faith, and the other, pistuo, to believe, is a verb. So, pistuo, believe, literally means to faith. To put my faith in something, to trust it entirely and completely. Aha, I said, that's amazing. So you can't have (coughs) faith in anything but, (coughs) excuse me, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. By the way, I think I have bad allergies right now. It's not my belief. (coughs) You cannot. You can only put your faith in God, and you can only believe in God. Now, this brings me to the story of Supposed doubting Thomas. How many of you know this story is the story of Doubting Thomas? It's interesting because that's not what it's historically called. If you're interested in what it's called, you look that up. I don't have time to describe it. But across the centuries, this story has not been called the story of Doubting Thomas. It's, it's got another name. And so what's really intriguing about this is that we have seen this in a particular light. So let me let me roll out the story the way I always saw it and see if you agree with me. You may not. Maybe, maybe you'll say different. Thomas, we believe, is this faithful apostle, just like the other apostles. And Thomas, for whatever reason, doesn't see the risen Lord when the others do, which is something I never even wondered about or questioned. <coughs> it's just he wasn't there. And so Thomas... Having not been there, refuses to believe that Jesus is risen. Bad, Thomas. Bad doubting, Thomas. What's the matter with you? Jesus told you he would rise, he rose. Your closest friends told you that he had risen, he'd risen. Couldn't you trust it? Why, oh, why, Thomas, did you doubt? (coughs) And in saying that he doubted, what we tend to say is he did not have faith, right? So the opposite, we've learned of doubt is what is faith but is that really the way the bible presents it and is that really what's in the story i do no longer think so it's not a belief thing i don't think so let's take a look at thomas because he's really rather fascinating So we can't know much about Thomas. It's not like, you know, don't you wish we had resumes of the apostles? Like somewhere in the Bible, there were just this list. Like maybe there's a glossary to the Bible, an appendix, and it tells you, oh, Thomas had these qualifications. This was his career. This was his wife. If he had one, these were his children, all that kind of stuff we could have known. We know very little about most of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, perhaps being the ones we know the most about. Judas, we know more about the others we don't know about. And Thomas is one of those we don't think we know more about. But he is quoted three times in the Gospel of John. And through his quotations, I have come to know Thomas a little better than I ever knew him before. Let's see if you agree with me about who Thomas is. Let's look at the first one. John chapter 11, verse 16. Then Thomas... also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, first of all, let me pull out an obvious thing. The word Didymus has a meaning. It means twin. So we know that Thomas was a twin, which if you're a twin, you know is is sort of interesting in itself. There are certain character qualifications that tend to line up with someone who has a twin. So we we know that Thomas was a twin, but we know way more than that from this story. Now, this comes from the story of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus has just said to his apostles, for your sake, it is good that Lazarus is really dead so that you can see the sign, so that you can know. Then Jesus says, let's go now after three days. Let's make our way to a little village right on the edge of Jerusalem. And what Thomas knows is that if Jesus at that point in his three-year career goes anywhere near Jerusalem, the authorities are going to catch up with him. He realizes there is incredible danger in this journey, and he would prefer that Jesus stay in the hillsides of Galilee. But Jesus says, nope, we're going to go to Bethany. We're going to go there, and we're going to we're going to accomplish an amazing thing with Lazarus. Thomas says, "Well, brothers, let's go and die with him." Now there are two things really that I can get from this. One of them's always occurred to me, and the second is not. So the first thing, the one that's always occurred to me is this guy's all in. So Thomas is willing to die for Jesus. He's willing to go to the bitter end. He is willing to give his life for his master. That's amazing. Incredible. So I say, all right, Thomas, you must be a person of great faith. But the second thing we can see here is that Thomas clearly believes there will be an end to Jesus' mission. He believes death will be the end of it. It'll be done. Now I start to wonder, what is it that Thomas thinks he signed up for? And what I'm going to read next is going to validate what I'm about to say. What is it that Thomas thinks he was doing? And the answer is, Thomas thinks he is following an earthly leader, an earthly Messiah. Perhaps he is, though we can't know for sure, a zealot. He and Judas Iscariot actually in life may have had a great deal in common. So, Thomas believes that Jesus could die, and if he dies, it's the end. And he's willing to die with him because that's the end of the mission. That's it. Thomas, I think, very likely is someone who, like many others of his day, waited for a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. He is a nationalist, he believes in the overthrow of the oppressor so that Israel can rise again. And so knowing that Jesus has chosen to go to Jerusalem means this could be the end of the dream. Now, hang on to this because this stuff really gets confirmed for me in the rest of the quotations. Quotation number two, John chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how... How can we know the way? Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Now, Jesus has just told his apostles, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. We read this at funerals often in my father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He just said to him, Thomas and all the other apostles and anybody else who happened to be listening, my mission is eternal and what I'm preparing for you is eternal. And then he says, guys, I'm going to be leaving soon and I'm going to be going to this place. Now, correct me if I'm wrong and I'm not a smart man, but I do know what love is. Correct me if, somebody's seen the movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. But this is pretty obvious. It's really clear that Jesus is not saying that he's going to some earthly place. He doesn't have a house on the Riviera. He's not going to the Caribbean to set up shop. He doesn't have a place to go that is on earth. He is clearly referring to something in the beyond. But Thomas is so matter-of-fact, he's so detailed that he says, Lord, you're going to have to write out the directions for me so I can get some clarity on how this thing is supposed to work. Thomas has a scientific mind. A lot of scholars call what Thomas is doing all through these scriptures, and especially in John 20, disambiguation. Are you familiar with that term? It's an awesome term. It means to obtain clarity by removing ambiguity. It is a literary term that scientists have employed now to speak about how we can narrow results by eliminating things that are ambiguous and sticking to what we know. So Thomas is a man of brass tacks. Now, let me tell you something. In my life, I've got a number of disambiguators. I happen not to be one of them. Do you have any disambiguators in your life? Are you a disambiguator by nature? At home, I have the master of all disambiguators. Her name is Debbie. And for her, everything is on or off. It is black or it's white. It is clear as everything could be. And the fact that you can't see how clear it is is your problem and not hers. And by you, I mean me, of course. Debbie is a scientific brain. She's a detailed person. She's always eliminating ambiguities. If something is really ambiguous, she'll tend to stay away from it except for one thing. So you'll tend to push it aside. Meanwhile, if you're like me, you love a little ambiguity. You love the great mysteries of life. A little, little mystery, you might think, is a good thing. That's me. She's more like Thomas, and I'm like Simon Peter. Every Simon Peter needs a Thomas, and every Thomas needs a Simon Peter. Every disambiguator needs an idealist, and every idealist needs a disambiguator. That's how life works, and so Thomas probably was pretty important to that little group of apostles because he was the one who did get the directions before they left. That was him. See, at work I have a disambiguator too. His name is Brett Flanders. He is a master disambiguator. I've never seen anybody love fact and trivia like him in my life. I mean, it's just the, the stuff he wants to know about. I'm curious about the same things. He'll tell you, well, that is .1 millimeters or what we're talking about right there. So just ask the rest of my staff team. When we're venturing into places, and this is necessary, the future's not known. And so planning for the future is a bit ambiguous. And so when we're venturing in some big thing, he's always the one that goes, hold on now. Exactly what are the directions? What are the facts? What are the details? And that's really, really helpful, right? There's nothing wrong with being like that. Thomas is a disambiguator now here's the thing some ambiguity is required to follow jesus christ do you know that some ambiguity is required to love god in isaiah 55 we find that his ways are not our ways his thoughts are not our thoughts so we cannot nail god down although many people try very very hard we can't decide we've got god's full resume we understand he's the creator. We know he loves us. We know he wants to redeem us. There's a lot we are ambiguous about. We can't be certain about. And so ambiguity is required for one thing, and that's pistuo, believing, but for nothing else. Just for that, that's the place where we can accept a vast measure of ambiguity. Now, here's the thing. I'm positive that Thomas was following Jesus as an earthly savior and that he had it all worked out how the battle would go in his mind that would overthrow Rome, reestablish Israel. And the reason I know is because when Thomas says, Lord, how can we possibly know the way? Look at what Jesus answers, Thomas. Now, we love these words, but these words are for Thomas. Jesus answers him, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is he asking Thomas for? To Believe in me, faith in me, trust me completely. Don't need all the facts. Don't need all the details. If you'll go with me, I will show you the way. I can't tell you the detail. I can't give you the instructions. I can't disambiguate this for you, but I can tell you if you'll stick with me, you're gonna be okay forever. Now that makes this really interesting when we get to the story we know best, and that's in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as the twin, he was one of the twelve. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. You pause for a minute. You know how you've read a story a hundred times and you just take something for granted, right? So, Thomas wasn't there when the others were. That explains Why he needed some clarity, some disambiguation with regards to the resurrection. Nobody can fault him there because the others had seen the risen Lord and they could believe. And Thomas needed the same privilege they'd had, which was to see. But for the first time in my life, I'm reading this story and I go, hold on a second. Where the heck was Thomas? Why was he not with them? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you have. And if you have, you can write me and say, Pastor, you're so dumb. Listen, why wasn't he with them? All the rest of them were together. All the rest of them had already seen Jesus. But Thomas is off somewhere by himself or with someone else doing something, which leads me to understand Thomas is the one among them other than Judas who's gone by now, who most believed that the mission was over. It was done. Jesus is dead. And there's nothing we can do about it. And the Romans are going to stay in power. And I need to go on with my life and do something else. The rest of them waited to see. But Judas and Thomas did not. Now what I'm led to understand is that Thomas followed Jesus as Lord but never recognized until what we're going to talk about, that he was God. Think about this. He was willing to die for him, give him mastery over his destiny, but he did not understand who he really was. Let's continue with the story. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples sold him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I disambiguate, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not pistuo. I will not believe. A very specific word. I'm not going to believe unless I see that. Remember, you can't believe in ideas. You can't believe in opinions. You can only believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Scripture. So he's saying, unless I see the risen Lord, I will not ascribe my full belief to God. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And then we're told by the NIV that Jesus had stopped doubting and believe. And then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I got problems with this translation. Did Jesus really say to Thomas, stop doubting? The word that he uses, or the word that's recorded in Greek, is apistos. It's just like in English. When you add an A to the front of the word, it is the opposite, 180 degrees from that word. So if the word here is a-believing, then the opposite of believing is what Thomas was doing. Jesus does not use the word for doubt. There is a word for doubt. He doesn't use it. He says, stop unbelieving. I believe that what he is saying to Thomas is... Put your belief in the right place and stop believing in earthly causes that cannot deliver you, cannot give you salvation, because once again, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. I think he is saying, stop misappropriating belief. Believe rightly. I think he's saying. And then he continues. He says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. You can put the scripture back up, please. Stop doubting and believe. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, again, the Greek here is interesting. My Lord and my God. What Thomas really says is which literally means the Lord of me and the God of me. Listen to what Thomas is saying now. He's saying, you are the Lord of me, but you are also the God of me. Now, I've preached this sermon 5,000 times that goes something like this. You can acknowledge God as God, but until you make Jesus Lord, you haven't taken the next step of discipleship. But what I've come to see now biblically is that if you actually do believe in God the Father, believe in God the Son believe in God the Holy Spirit, if you actually do believe, you are faithing, and so he becomes your Lord by nature. It is quite possible, in fact, to say that Jesus is my Lord and say I'm living according to his purpose or plan as I see it, but never truly acknowledge that he is the only thing in my life worthy of belief. There is nothing else It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I will reserve belief only for this. Will you believe only in God? Now listen, friends, this is no trivial matter. A lot of really good social scientists are saying in our day that we are supplanting our religion with other beliefs. In essence, because we have become a nation full of nuns and because many, N-O-N-E-S, and because many people have decided that they are not going to practice religion anymore, they have elevated other things to the status of religion. And the thing most prominently spoken of is politics. And so we've got people on either extreme who make wokeness their religion or who make nationalism their religion. It's on both sides. And then they bathe it in spiritual language of redemption. And they buy into an earthly cause. Don't get me wrong. I think being woke to God's justice is a good thing. And I think loving your country is a good thing. But they're not religions. And we should never believe in these things. His kingdom is not of this earth Belief is for God the Father. Belief is for God the Son. Belief is for God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is nothing else, and nothing else is even going to matter to you when your life is over on this earth. They are the only things worthy of your belief. Will you believe only in God? That was the question asked of Thomas. Now listen, once Thomas had seen the risen Lord, once he knew the truth, he was his Lord and he was his God because the resurrection changes everything. You can stake your life on it. This is what God's up to. It's what he's doing. It changes everything for you too. Now unfortunately, we can't literally see the risen Lord until we breathe our last and we go to heaven, but I've seen the risen Lord. Have you? I've seen the risen Lord. I've seen him move and act in this world. I've seen him change people's lives. I've seen him change me. I've seen the risen Lord and that changes everything. He is my Lord and he is my only God and he is the only one in whom I believe. Will you believe only in God? This is not a small thing. I'm changing my vocabulary It's kind of interesting because I'm catching myself using the word belief all the time when it doesn't apply. I think, I conjecture, I speculate. I will only use the word belief, like the Bible does, to speak of my God. That's it. So before I might have said, I believe in my wife, Debbie. I don't believe in my wife. We both believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's what sustained our marriage and made it what it is. I don't believe in my children. I love my children, but I don't believe in them. The fact that they honor God means everything to me because I believe in God and they believe in God, and we have a link that is stronger than blood. I don't believe in Columbia. I love it. I serve it. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in you, and you shouldn't believe in me. And I don't believe in any political figure or any political platform, and I don't believe in any life philosophy. I believe in God. I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's it and once we're clear on what we believe we understand everything else a little differently don't we because when we ascribe the word belief it becomes a religious matter non-negotiable but we should seek disambiguation in everything else and look for the proof that it is real and true and right and noble this is not small this to me is is just huge Paul said it this way Let us, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, worship as we, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is near because worship and community, they reinvigorate our true belief in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to decide how to respond to the resurrection. Believing in it, along with other things, will not do. Will you believe only in the risen Lord? We will believe something, friends, Samuel Goldman called this the law of the conservation of religion. You will believe in something, but only Christ is worthy of your belief. And once you establish that, everything else becomes a whole lot less ambiguous. Would you pray with me, Father? Father? Give us the courage to truly believe, to faith in you and you alone and never to elevate any other idol, even near to you. It's not a matter of priority like lining things up behind you. You are above all, beyond all, so high above anything that nothing else even compares. Anything in this world, including us, just millions of miles lower. Help us never, ever, to believe in anything but you. And because we believe in you, we know you will save us through the cross and its forgiveness and the empty tomb and its recreation. And because, Lord, we have been with you, the risen one, we know a hope that has forever changed us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is risen and he and he alone is worthy of your belief. In that light, you go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week and we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia. Go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.